Hello, and welcome to our COVID Minute podcast series from UT Health San Antonio. I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine Infectious Diseases and Associate Dean for Quality and Lifelong Learning at the Lozano Long School of Medicine. Our goal is to bring you timely and concise insights and updates on COVID-19 by interviewing our UT Health faculty experts who are very involved in COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. In episode three, we discussed outpatient therapies for COVID-19. One of these was monoclonal antibodies. There's been a lot of interest in this topic since then. So we are doing a special edition follow-up podcast focused specifically on monoclonal antibodies. And to do that, today we are interviewing Dr. C.J. Winkler, Assistant Professor of Emergency Health Services and Emergency Medicine at UT Health San Antonio, and Deputy Medical Director for San Antonio Fire Department and Emergency Medical Services. We're talking about monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19, and our emergency health services are playing a very active role locally for reasons that we'll talk about. So, Dr. Winkler. Tell us, what are monoclonal antibodies? Hi, Dr. Patterson, thanks for having me. So monoclonal antibodies are laboratory-made proteins that fight off viruses in the body. Usually our bodies make proteins that function as antibodies, but these monoclonals are laboratory-made proteins that function to block attachment by the spike protein and entry of the virus into the cells, thus neutralizing the virus. So in November, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization to allow the use of investigational monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. Currently, there are two monoclonal antibody products on the market, and they are intravenous medications. Okay, so first there was bamlanivimab, the Lilly product given by itself. And then Regeneron put out their cocktail, Casarivimab and Imdevimab. They're given together. And the U.S. government is now distributing these supplies to states. So tell us, who is eligible to receive them? So the emergency use authorization, the EUA, authorizes use in the following patients. You have to qualify with all four of these things I'm going to mention. So the first one is those who have a positive test for SARS-CoV-2. And that has to be a molecular, often known as PCR, or an antigen test. Also has to be within 10 days from the start of their symptoms. You have to be at least 12 years old and weigh greater than 40, 40 kilograms. And you have to be at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19 illness and or hospitalization. So these criteria may be further restricted because the supply of the drug is very limited. Some areas are already having to do that. And it's thought to be more beneficial to give the drug early in disease. Um, and so some are limiting use to within seven or even five days of the onset of their symptoms. And I just wanna make the point that you do have to have symptoms. This is not for asymptomatic people. So um, tell us about how how high risk is defined in the emergency use authorization. Yeah, so I kind of break it into two categories in my mind. So there are individual things that will get you, um, high risk things that will get you into the treatment uh, category. And then there are things where you have to have an and. So the, the most common uh, 
thing to get you into the EUA for monoclonal antibody is to be 65 years of age or older. The second most common has probably been diabetes. Then we have chronic kidney disease. We have a body mass index of greater than 35, immunosuppressive disease, or currently receiving immunosuppressive treatments. Any one of those things will make you eligible to receive treatment. Now the ANDs are 55 years of age or older and have one or more of the following. So cardiovascular disease, hypertension, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or other chronic respiratory disease. And then another category are 12 to 17 years of age and have one or more of the following. So a body mass index greater than 85th percentile, 85th percentile for their age and gender based on the CDC charts, clinical growth charts, or sickle cell disease, or congenital or acquired heart disease, or neural developmental disorders, for example, cerebral palsy, a medical related technological dependence, for example, a trach, gastrostomy, or positive pressure ventilation that is not related to COVID-19, and probably the more common one would be asthma, reactive airway disease, or other chronic respiratory disease that requires a daily medication for control. Okay, so there's a lot of screening involved to make sure you get the right people, and we'll talk more in a minute about uh, how you all are doing it, doing that. And again, some areas may need to modify eligible uh, groups due to the limited supply of the drug. What about pregnant or breastfeeding women? So. Currently, monoclonal antibodies have not been studied sufficiently to make a recommendation for therapy in those particular groups. Okay, and we also have some uh, information from the studies about who should not get monoclonals. And who are those group, groups of people that should not get monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, great question. So those who are hospitalized due to COVID-19 should not get monoclonals, or those who require oxygen therapy to COVID-19 due to COVID-19, or those who require an increase in baseline oxygen flow rate due to COVID-19, especially you know, for those on chronic oxygen therapy due to underlying non-COVID-19 related comorbidity. Treatment is not beneficial in these groups and in fact may worsen outcomes for those patients. Okay, and that's really important to note. Um, and also the fact that hospitalized patients aren't eligible makes this difficult to administer and we'll talk more about that also in a minute. And then let's talk about the potential benefits um, in the studies leading to these authorizations. The monoclonals uh, showed a decreased rate of hospitalization and ER visits from 9 or 10 percent uh, to 3 percent in the groups that were at high risk of progression. And in those who were 65 or older, or who had a BMI of greater than or equal to 35, the benefit appeared to be greater, decreasing the risk from 15% to 4%. At the current time, however, the NIH guidelines and IV Society of America guidelines do not routinely recommend monoclonal antibodies as a routine treatment, but the IDSA guidelines do remark that they're a reasonable treatment option after informed decision-making about potential benefits and side effects. And so, uh, just what are the side effects of treatment? Yeah, so the side effects of treatment are primarily infusion related and may include itching, flushing, GI type side effects, and specifically the most commonly reported side effects in bamlanivimab, uh, 
were, which were interestingly not significantly different than the placebo group, which is up to 4%, about two to 4%. That included nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, headache, and pruritus. So for the casirivimab and the indevimab, at about 1% of patients that were in the trials, they had nausea, vomiting, um, hyperglycemia, or pneumonia. And in combined clinical trials of these agents involving almost 3,000 people, there were two episodes of anaphylaxis, severe allergic reaction, and five serious infusion-related reactions, all treated, all resolved. So clinical studies regarding safety are continuing, ongoing. And because there is an antibody treatment, because this is an antibody treatment, it is possible it could interfere for a time at least with a person's own immune response to SARS-CoV-2 or their response to a COVID-19 vaccine. Because of the potential for reactions, the infusion must be given slowly. We give it over an hour. And then one hour of monitoring on site after the infusion is required by the EUA. Yes, and then and regarding the vaccine, uh, now that the vaccine has come out, there's actually recommendations that if you get the monoclonal antibodies, you should not get the vaccine for at least 90 days because you're gonna have these laboratory uh, made antibodies around and you won't get a full response to the vaccine. So, um, so where can patients receive these monoclonal antibodies? They can't get it, they can't get it in hospitalized patients, so uh, the hospital is not really an option. Yeah, so due to the potential for allergic reactions, it must be administered in a facility that has personnel and medications to treat a severe infusion reaction. And since the patients receiving the drugs are infectious with COVID-19, they must be treated in a separate area that allows isolation. We've already said that patients requiring hospitalization, as you just mentioned, due to COVID-19 are not authorized to get these agents. Most infusion centers are full of immunocompromised patients, so that's not a good option. And most ERs are already full of patients who are acutely ill. In some areas, infusion centers are scheduling these patients after hours. Yes, and we've given a few doses in our emergency room, but that emergency room is already very crowded, and this is something that could really you know, uh, backlog emergency rooms. So what about other options? Tell us what we're doing here locally. This is where emergency health services come in. Yeah, so we've been lucky to have a collaborative effort between several local hospitals, several hospital uh, physicians, and our Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council. So we have opened a regional infusion center for monoclonal antibodies to serve patients in Bear County and I would say beyond. Okay, so tell us about that regional infusion center. So regional infusion center can be a mouthful, so we call it the RIC for short. And a little over two weeks ago, as you well know, on November 30th, we set up in a field hospital, staffed with professionals, including physicians, nurses, advanced practice providers, and paramedics. So staffing has been provided by uh, BCFS, San Antonio Fire Department, participating hospitals, Pharmacy, we have an on-site pharmacist um, su supported by University Hospital to prepare the drug and assist with infusions. You know, we are staffed and prepared for infusion, screening, consenting, monitoring, any emergency. And, you know, part of that has been we've established a referral mechanism locally for physicians, health systems, emergency departments, clinics, everybody. 
uh, to refer patients. And we may include that after, but I'll say that's uh, strac.org forward slash RIC, R-I-C. I must state from the beginning, the RIC has worked very hard to make the antibodies available to underserved populations as the EUA is very explicit about addressing health equity when deploying this therapy. So we've worked very closely with health ethicists, infectious disease experts such as yourself, and community leaders to focus on this. And having my boots on the ground, I can say that I believe we've reached those communities and needs. We've had quite a few patients from clinics that traditionally serve and treat under, um, you know, patient, patients that suffer from health inequities. So the regional infusion center at this time has the ability to treat 30 patients per day. We work 7A to 7P, Monday through Friday, generally schedule 15 patients in the morning and 15 in the evening. As in all things COVID, we adjust daily and the physical space can accommodate many more patients. You know, we'd be willing to treat as many patients as possible. It's just a matter of providers, funding, and equipment. So tell us a little bit more about what this looks like. Is this all in one big room or um, how, what does this field hospital setup look like? Yeah, so this was the alternate uh, care center that was set up many months ago um, at the Expo Hall, a large footprint of a building where there were 80 beds essentially set up where it was originally intended to be a COVID step-down unit. And since that uh, we don't have any patients there at this time, we're trying to keep patients out of there. So we, we transitioned from the original intent of that facility and, and just beautifully transitioned into turning it into a place to keep patients out of the hospital. Well, that's a great use of that resource. Uh, tell us about some of the patients that you've treated at the RIC. So uh, kind of to paint a picture, most of our patients have been ambulatory. Um, they get their treatment and they drive home. Uh, interesting to me, um, and probably any infectious disease doctor knows this, but many of our patients are married couples, which makes sense. Uh, you know, two of our very first patients were married, both qualified for monoclonal antibodies, uh, received infusions at, at the exact same time for their infections, and then drove home together. So probably not their best date, but hopefully the monoclonal antibodies actually, you know, help them keep them out of the hospital. Um, uh, yesterday, I was, or we were trying to give a married couple in their 90s directions uh, to the infusion center, and they're receiving their infusion right now as we speak. And the, <laughs> we're trying to give directions, and the wife said, oh, son, just give me the address. I'll put it in my Waze app. <laughs> so, uh, you know, our patient with the most life experience was nearly 100 years old. Uh, she was lovely. She asked me if this is the treatment the president got or the other one. <laughs> I, told her the, I told her the other one. Uh, she said, well, that one seems to work too. She obviously had done her research. I consented to her. She received her very uneventful therapy. She started to walk out on, under her own power, but we convinced her that we would like to wheel her out in a wheelchair to her vehicle. Um, you know, early on in the in our infusion program, we received referrals from clinics, and, and I mentioned this earlier, and I think it's so important, uh, that treat relations. And I have to say, personally, that was a highlight for me. 
I was probably the only one in there in the treatment center that was so excited that we had patients from those underserved clinics or, or clinics that serve underserved populations. And because you and I and, and many other people had worked very hard to reach out to that population. Um, interesting story that helped change our operations was we had a patient that had been fasting before becoming, before coming to receive his infusion. And he thought fasting rules were gonna be similar to procedures or surgeries he received in the past. So naturally he felt a little lightheaded, but mostly hungry and thirsty after his transfusion. We gave him some IV fluids augmented by some PO fluids and uh, brought a kolache from our break room. So he had some breakfast and he felt much better. His symptoms resolved, he drove himself home. And you know, I just bring this up to mention that during screening and scheduling, which is a very important part of what we do, we're always refining our process to inform patients before and when they arrive on what to expect, which is old hat for you and your team, but is new for us um, building a hospital out here in the wild, in the pre-hospital setting. And, you know, to sum up, I think every patient has been grateful, and I'm in turn grateful, you know, to help these patients and the community at large. Hopefully, we can uh, keep some patients out of the hospital for real. Well, that's really important because that, that underserved population uh, here, as well as other places, has been at higher risk for hospitalization and for severe disease. So it's uh, not only helping them individually, but helping them, um, you know, as a community, if we're able to keep them out of the hospital. So have you seen any infusion reactions? So we have not had any infusion reactions in the facility. We did um, have one patient, it was actually yesterday, so one patient um, out of the total, of, it'll be 125 plus or minus patients after today. That's about two and a half weeks of treatment. We've had one patient that was nauseous and they were nauseous before they came in. So we kind of pre-treated with Zofran as it were. Now we have had one, what, what I feel was a transfusion reaction. So three or four hours after a patient got home, they had a fever, um, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness. Uh, they're his daughter is a dialysis nurse and she gave him Tylenol and Benadryl and those symptoms resolved within a few hours with the exception of the dizziness which resolved the next morning. Okay so you're, you're not routinely giving uh, Tylenol or Benadryl as a pre-medication is that right? We generally are not but because that patient had had a recent um, platelet transfusion we are we do have a little more suspicion for those that have had any blood transfusions or any, you know, um, biology or biologic type transfusion recently, and even in the past. And we, we will, on a patient by patient uh, basis, determine if we pre-treat. And we have pre-treated a few with Benadryl. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, to, to make a difference there, you have to give a lot of this uh, to a lot of different patients. And how much monoclonal antibody is actually available? So uh, Eli Lilly has committed to manufacturing up to 1 million doses in 2020 with an agreement to supply 300,000 doses within the first two months after the EUA. And Regeneron, has the, that's the manufacturer of the other antibody, um, has committed to providing 300,000 doses by January 2021 and 100,000 doses a month in subsequent months. So Texas was to get three to 5,000 doses weekly since the EUA and these doses are allocated 
to areas within Texas by dishes, Department of State Health Services, based on the number of COVID cases in the area and COVID hospitalized patients. So essentially the more you use, the more you get. So we're going week by week to see exactly what our allocation will be. And so far, since you're using it, you're continuing to get supplies, is that right? Yeah, so we you we definitely have enough supply to go out for the next few weeks, months, potentially. Um, again, it all depends on how many patients need this treatment. So today it's 30. We're treating almost 30. Uh, if next week it's 100 a day, we will, as in all things COVID, um, we will adjust fire and do our best to get the appropriate amount of medications down here to San Antonio. So these monoclonal antibodies are potentially beneficial for those at high risk of progression with COVID-19. They're helpful for the individual because it can potentially prevent progress to serious disease, but they can also be helpful to the community by decreasing hospitalization at a time when hospital beds are really needed in many areas. But as we talked about, they must be given early uh, in those with mild to moderate symptoms within 10 days of the onset of symptoms and the earlier the better. Uh, and those not eligible include patients needing hospitalization or oxygen because of COVID-19. And to make a difference in a community on decreasing hospitalizations, a large number of patients will need to receive the therapy. So health systems are finding, uh, having to find innovative ways to administer these agents. And here in San Antonio, we're doing it with a collaboration from our regional advisory council, San Antonio Fire and EMS, and our local hospitals. So thank you, Dr. Winkler, for telling us about what San Antonio is doing and giving us an update on monoclonal antibodies and how it can work in real time in, in this unique collaboration. Join us next time as we give another update on COVID-19. Thank you.